Thank you for downloading this podcast from the BBC of Forethought, in which Anthony McGowan gives a personal view in front of a live audience at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce in London. The presenter is Ben Hammersley. Welcome to the RSA and to Forethought, a series of talks offering a personal viewpoint. Tonight's speaker, Anthony McGowan, is an award-winning author of novels for adults, children and teenagers. He studied politics and philosophy and has a PhD on the history of the concept of beauty. His first novel was a thriller for adults. His later novel, for young adults, The Knife That Killed Me, dealt with the problem of knife crime, a problem he sees as endemic to current youth culture, where children go out routinely armed with knives. The picture was different when he was growing up, but it had its own dark side. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony McGowan. There's a sketch by the comedians Mitchell and Webb, which you, you may have seen, in which a couple of SS officers are preparing to face an attack on the Eastern Front. On noticing, as if for the first time, the skull and crossbones on his cap badge, one asks the other in a perplexed sort of way, Hans, are we the baddies? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a funny line uh, and gains much from Mitchell's habitual air of baffled innocence. But it also has deeper resonances. And compressed within it are, I think, profound questions about history, about geopolitics, perhaps about the, the nature of the human soul itself. Now, there is, of course, an almost irresistible human impulse to look on ourselves as the goodies, or with a little more grandiosity, as the heroes of our own narratives. Whether we're fighting over the height of our neighbours, landing eye Hedge, or authorising airstrikes on crumbling dictatorships. Now, I strongly suspect that the great monsters of history, from Attila to Saddam by way of Stalin, Hitler, Mao and Pol Pot, have shared this delusion, viewing their actions as in some way ethical or conforming to a moral code, be it religious, tribal, nationalistic or ideological. Now, I trawled through history trying to find some monstrous tyrant, honest in his appraisal of his own cruelty, a cheerful barbarian, a straightforwardly savage conqueror, able to say that, yes, I did this for the rapes, for the rapine and the riches, for the sheer love of killing and burning, for the oil. I did it because I'm evil, because I'm a baddie. I thought for a while that perhaps Timur the Lame, the Tamburlaine of Christopher Marlowe, might be that honest monster. In the last decades of the 14th century, Timur carved out a huge empire, reaching from Iraq right across Central Asia to northern India. And wherever he went, he left burnt cities and towers of skulls in his wake. But even Marlowe's scourge of God, it seems, was unable to fess up and say, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm really, really bad. And the lesson of this is, of course, that it's always worth interrogating our own motives and that our interrogation should be its most rigorous when we are most convinced of the purity, honour and goodness of our intentions. However, I found this question, the are we the baddies question, had a deeper and more personal resonance for me. To find out why, I had to look a little closer to home, although it did begin, in a sense, back in Timor's old killing grounds. A couple of years ago, I came across a photograph on a social networking site. It was the one where, where middle-aged men 
try and get in touch with the girl they fancied in the fourth form. Um, that, that one, um, I'm sure you've all been there. And uh, I, I came across a photograph on this site. It showed a soldier um, standing in front of a tank in the desert. The face looked vaguely familiar. I checked the name. And yes, it belonged to a kid that I used to know at school. And when I looked back at the soldier again, I could still just discern the boy in the man, pale and strangely alone. Roland Barthes, the French philosopher, in his book Camera Lucida, talks about a feature you sometimes find in a photo, a point of intensity that moves you, some small detail that creates a sort of vortex that sucks you in to the secret world of the photo. Now, Bath calls this point the punctum. Now, as I gazed at the photo of this boy, I'll call him Duffy, um, wasn't his real name, I saw that there was a smudge of something on his face, oil or dirt, not blood, I don't think, but most definitely a punctum. And suddenly I was drawn back through the vista of years to our old school, Corpus Christi in Leeds, and I was watching a child being kissed on his cheek by his mother, leaving a red smudge of lipstick. Now, Corpus served the huge and impoverished Holton Moor estate. The school itself looked like a Bulgarian nuclear plant, all stained concrete and broken windows, and it was full of scary, violent and disturbed kids. Bullying was endemic, along with a generally high background level of brutality, much of it emanating from the teachers. It was a tough environment, and you survived, if you did at all, with the help of your friends. My gang back then was a group of uh, nice kids, the nerds and misfits, potential bully fodder by virtue of having curly hair or glasses or the wrong trainers. And we should have been preyed on by the hard kids, dead-legged and spat on, our dinner money stolen and our hopeless satchels hurled over the school fence. The reason we weren't was down to Chris, the unchallenged leader of our little group. He was from the local estate, so he was as tough as depleted uranium. Even the other kids, were, the hard kids, were frightened of him. So Chris didn't really belong with us. He was too tough and too cool. But for some reason, he liked me. We got each other's jokes, felt easy together. And then he let Duffy into our lives. Duffy, back then, was a colourless, pasty kid with grey teeth and skinny legs. He had no chat, no jokes, no panache. But Duffy's biggest fault, his fatal flaw, was having a mother who loved him. And so that kiss on the first day of school. Now, it's bad enough being taken to school by your mother, but to be kissed right there with a playground full of wolves and hyenas and jackals looking on, well, Mrs Duffy may as well have stabbed him in the heart with a screwdriver. Because from then on, it was open season. He'd be punched and kicked by anyone who felt like it, which turned out to be almost everybody. Two years of that, and Duffy was more ghostly than ever, slipping silently from classroom to classroom, craving only invisibility. And then Duffy was given a glimmer of hope. It all began when Chris let Duffy sit near us during the lunch break. There were five of us, and we always used to eat our woeful packed lunches in an alcove of the school wall, sheltering from the cold, wet wind that always blows in my memories of Leeds. Normally, we would have stoned Duffy like a pariah dog, and driven him away. But Chris started talking to him. And before the rest of us knew what was happening, he was in our alcove, sharing our warmth, stealing our cool. I didn't like it. Partly it was the fear that Duffy was going to make us a target, that we were going to pick up his death stink 
But there was another part as well, small but heavy as osmium. I was jealous. Chris was my friend. And then Chris told Duffy that he could come and muck about with us after school by the beck. A bit of geography. Um, Our school was on the scuzzy outskirts of Leeds. And next to the school, there was a stream that we called by the northern term a beck. Then there was a field called the Gypsy Field, named after the Romanies who would camp there, coming and going in that mysterious gypsy way. But you mustn't get the wrong idea about the beck. It wasn't some babbling brook full of fish and tadpoles, all sparkly with white water. It was brown and oily and stank like a chemical toilet. But that didn't matter. For us, it was a place of adventure and excitement and enchantment, a place where things happened. Now, for most of its length, the beck was too wide to jump across, and its muddy banks were slippery and treacherous. But there were a couple of spots where the stream narrowed, and you could leap with a good chance of a safe landing, and you could not beat it. The sense of freedom as you jumped, nothing tying you down, just you and the air, your mates gathering round together against the mud, against the water, against the world. Now, of course, Duffy had never been one of the Beck jumpers. One evening, I thought I saw him from the top of a bus, standing alone by the Beck, gazing out over its waters, dreaming perhaps of flight, of soaring, of the claps on the back and the ironic cheers for a wobbly landing. And I wished that he had some friends of his own to do stuff with. But now, he was with us, ruining things. It had to end. At one of the Beck's widest, deepest parts, it formed a sort of a pool. And that's where the gypsies had dumped a fridge. It looked like a sunken aircraft carrier, with only a small diamond of angled deck showing above the water. No one had ever jumped the pool before. It was just too wide. You need to be an Olympic champion. But with the fridge there, I wondered if maybe a kid could leap from the right-hand bank, land with one foot on the fridge, and then spring off again, landing safely on the far side. You'd need neat footwork, clever eyes, even assuming that the platform was stable. But the fridge wasn't stable. I knew it wasn't because I'd poked it with a stick. The fridge was balanced on some kind of pivot in the sludge. A brick, or a bike, or a dead dog. Anyone landing on the fridge would fall into the poisonous filth. So now I sidled up to Duffy, and I tempted him. There's a cool place to jump. You have to step stone on the fridge. It's not hard. I've done it. Chris will think it's cool. I could see the patterns of thought written on his face. This leap was the key. Turn that key, and the years of loneliness and pain would vanish. He looked up at me. Okay. Duffy's jumping the fridge, I screamed at the others, leaving him no time to change his mind. He took off his blazer and gave it to me. He had six or seven pens in the pocket and a clean folded hanky and a 50 pence piece. Chris was telling him what to do. They were standing close together. Duffy was nodding, smiling. He looked happy for the first time since his mother had kissed him two years before. It was time. He ran. He leapt. It was a good leap. I couldn't see his face because we were behind him. But I could imagine it, and I have imagined it many times since. He'd left it all in his wake, the years of horror, the beatings, the dog mess smeared on his blazer, all that. He was a butterfly, shuffling off the dry brown cocoon, becoming beautiful. And then Duffy's foot came down on the fridge, and the fridge, as it was meant to do, betrayed him. And into the water he fell, 
a look of horror and shock on his face. Of course, everyone found this hysterical, laughter, shouts, jeering. We didn't even look as Duffy dragged himself out of the beck. But I noticed an odd thing. Chris didn't help him. He just stood there and watched, his face blank. And then Chris walked away, back across the rough gypsy field to the council estate where he lived. And Duffy didn't look at me as he took the blazer from my hands. I'd taken the 50 pence from his pocket. Afterwards, Duffy walked alone to his own bus stop. He never sat again with us at lunchtime, and Chris didn't try to encourage him. And then he fades from my my memory. But I have an idea that he found some others like himself. The bullying must have diminished because it nearly always does if you wait for long enough. Chris himself stopped hanging out with us. I suspect that my betrayal of Duffy changed how he thought about me, about us, about the nice kids. We were no better than the brutes who kicked the living crap out of you for wearing glasses or having a mum who loved you. And so he became one of them, one of the brutes. He dropped out of school and spiralled down into a place of impossible darkness, too distressing to relate. But Duffy's story was perhaps a little happier. As you know, he'd ended up in the army, posting his picture on the friendsreunited.com website, with that smudge on his cheek, so like the fatal mark left by his mother's kiss. And where was he? In Iraq, of course, on the road to Baghdad, which was the last great city utterly destroyed by Timur the Lame. And now we're back where we started, with that question. Are we, am I, the baddies? And the answer? The answer, of course, is yes. I just apologise. I so wanted to send you home with a light step and a joke. It's... <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. We're going to go straight to the audience again, I think. Or they're possibly too shocked. <laughs> you do all by, hate me now. You do, don't by you? By the evil <laughs> that lurks amongst us. You have stunned the audience. <laughs> uh, no, we don't. We have one brave soul who looks very good and angelic from over here. I was just thinking about whether... You to ask you if it's just something that children do to be quite cruel to each other but actually thinking about it adults are very cruel to each other as well but just in a sort of more subtle way so which would you prefer well there's something about um about secondary schools where there are these incredibly defined power hierarchies Uh, and you you know either you have power you don't and that's where you get that that chance for that kind of um almost caricature depression (laughs) you know that there are there are people who have utter power over you when you when you're 13 or 14 the hard kids um, and I'm always um, reluctant to, to think about the concept of evil in relation to children. It's clearly absurd. Uh, but if you're the person who's being, if you're the, the, the Duffy in the story, being bullied by the hard kids, to you they are evil. Um, but then I remember that the, the, mo- the most brilliant bully I ever met was when I, I used to be a civil servant, and there was a, a woman I used to work for um, <laughs> uh, who, who was, uh, she was this terrifying, clever, subtle, warped woman. Who, who, could, uh, who could crush you with a word or, or a look. Um, so, you know, but clearly, bullying doesn't go away. As you, as you suggest, it becomes more subtle, more clever. As the audience warms up to evil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really bad, honestly. <laughs> no, I guess we were all hoping for a happy ending, but I wondered who... Maybe he's asked you to be a friend on Facebook, and if so, 
maybe there's a story in the forgiveness of the whole thing. Well, you know, you know what? what I'm glad you asked because I, I did. Um, I, I emailed him um, through the website and literally begged his forgiveness, uh, and I never heard back. And I don't know if that's because maybe he just didn't go back to the site. Maybe the whole area was just too painful. Maybe if he'd forgotten, didn't know who the hell I was. I, I don't know. But I, I, I craved forgiveness, certainly. You don't wait outside his house, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he lives. It's <laughs> he has a gun. <laughs> well, he has, but I... Uh... When did you realise that you'd done something bad? When that happened, did you know straight away that... You've been a bad boy, or did you wait a while and then realise? Uh, well, I think children have that, that kind of ache inside them when they realise that they've, they've been bad. But it's only as an adult looking back that it's acquired that extra sort of resonance and that, that, that texture that, that, <laughs> that makes me hate my, myself. But, uh. I just wonder, because, um, you know, I grew up in a school that was quite rough, and we had that kind of hierarchy of bullies and good people and bad people but I'm sure we were all on a spectrum in there and I had a similar experience I had a best friend who was horribly bullied when I was at school and um, I, I felt good for being her friend but then I thought was I a good enough friend was I sometimes a really bad friend and I went on Facebook recently and I tried to make friends with her and she didn't want to know oh, no. <laughs> but you know it's, it's very very hard for a child to stand up to, to bullies I mean, it's not even a physical fit it's that the shame associated with, be, with being bullied that kind of crushes your, your spirit. Final question. What would you say if a child of yours was being bullied? Um, to that child. Yeah, but someone's more difficult. What if they were the bully? <laughs> what would you say? Um, well, you know, I actually I do think um, that the only way you ever, ever personally cope with bullying is by standing up to it in a physical way. This is, this is my experience of being at a tough school. That even if you're one of the you know, kids who weren't good at fighting, if you tried to fight, the bullies would move on. Now, clearly, that doesn't solve the problem in the school. It just means that someone else gets their shit kicked out of them. But from a personal point of view, it makes your life slightly better. So, you know, it's a, but I also think... I do a lot of school visits now as a, as a writer, children's writer. And um, there's this, this myth that, that, that modern, modern comprehensives are, are, are violent or hectic places... I think it's often because you, you, you get to, um, people writing about education now were perhaps educated in private schools back in the 70s or whatever, or in grammar schools. And, and a modern state school can seem a slightly hectic, chaotic place compared to a grammar school in the 1970s. But compared to a comprehensive or secondary modern in the 70s, modern, modern state schools are incredibly civilised places. Now, I do definitely feel there's less bullying. I mean, the, the whole thing about, about knives count because... Back when I was at school, there were fights every single playtime. You'd hear this cry going around, fight, fight. You'd look around, there'd be two kids you know, having a massive rumble. But no one ever got really properly physically hurt. But as soon as you introduced knives into the equation, which kind of happened a couple of years ago, uh, every flashpoint becomes potentially fatal. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony McGowan. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the BBC of Forethought, in which the speaker was Anthony McGowan. The programme was presented by Ben Hammersley and produced by Sheila Cook. For more information and our terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4.